You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. Good morning, everyone. We are going to be in Luke 19, 28 through 44 today. If you are new to us today, welcome. We are so glad that you're here. If you are not new, welcome. I'm also glad that you came back. Uh, it's fantastic to be together. Um, I just love Sundays. I love being with our church family, and I'm excited for what God has for us today. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to be here together, God, to gather, Lord, um, and worship you in freedom, Lord, with amazing brothers and sisters in Christ, God, who love you, God, and it's just such a blessing to um, to gather together, to study your word together, to praise you together, to encourage each other and challenge each other, Lord, I just thank you for that opportunity. God, today I pray that specifically that you would give us a real spiritual thirst for you. God, that we would thirst um, desperately for you. I've just been pondering this a little bit, Lord, and I just think one of the things that's great about um, being thirsty is that you know that you're alive. And so I pray, God, that we would all be alive. And if we haven't felt thirsty, Lord, in a while, um, that that would set off some alarm bells. Lord, and that you would revive our hearts, revive our souls, so that we would be thirsty for you, so that we can be alive, Lord. And so we pray, um, for today I pray for me, I pray that you would give me the words, Lord, to say, God, that they would be your words and not mine. And ultimately, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully, because that's where things actually happen. Lord, I um, am a vessel, um, but you are the one who does the work, and you're the one, if you do the work, that it will actually enact change. Lord, it will actually enact um, a difference in our lives. And that's what we desire, Lord. I don't want people to be changed for an hour or a day or a week. I want them to be changed um, for the rest of their life because of you, not because of me. Lord, so we pray for that this morning in your name. Amen. All right, so here's our outline for today. It's pretty basic um, because this is probably what every outline looks like when you're studying the Bible. This is what we're going to do. We are going to read our text. We are going to study the text, and then we're going to apply the text and so in one sense, this is a very standard approach, and I hope you can use this approach And when you study the Bible a lot. And yet in another sense, sort of like I prayed, I hope that today is not standard at all, right? Because for a lot of us, we know um, the account of Palm Sunday. Um, but my prayer is that today that you would look upon it with new eyes and that my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would be working in you today like crazy and that when you're confronted with the truth of God's word, that the truth of God's word itself would energize you and invigorate you and challenge you and change you. And so that's my heart for this morning. Let's read Luke 19, starting at verse 28 together. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it there. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he told them. 
And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And then I just inserted this quickly from Matthew, um, because the, the other accounts in the gospel, this is obviously a big part that you'll all remember. They were one of the noises they were saying is, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then let's jump right back into Luke 19, verse 38. We're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that were made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so I know this account is familiar to you, um, but I hope that um, today that you can have a fresh perspective of this. And so I want to give you a, a little bit of a backstory so that you can fully appreciate what is happening. Because this account is in um, all the Gospels. And so if you flip back a little bit in them, you're going to see some of the things that I'm talking about. So the first one is this. You can see on the screen um, back there the town of Bethany. Right, And so if you know Bethany at all, you know that um, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead at Bethany. And so we read in God's word that when he did that, that the crowd of people who believed in Jesus grew. And so Jesus is hanging out in Bethany. He raises Lazarus from the, jet, the dead. And then if you see up top there, see Ephraim up top up there? Um, Jesus moves from Bethany and he actually goes to Ephraim. Um, because the religious leaders, they get so upset that he raised Lazarus from the dead that they're looking to kill Lazarus, and they're looking to kill Jesus. And so he knew his time had not yet come, so he goes up to Ephraim, and he's hanging out there, and the Bible says that for a time he didn't walk among the Jews. And then the Passover approaches. And so as the Passover is approaching, they start to make their way back down to Jerusalem. And so they pass through Jericho, right? And we know what happens in Jericho. Jesus heals two blind men, including Bartimaeus, um, which only adds to the crowds of people um, coming with him as pilgrims to Jerusalem to take the Passover, to participate in it. And then um, on the way from this, we read in Luke, if you duck down a little bit before you're going to see this in Luke 19, 11, that Jesus tells the parable of the minas to the crowd that was following him. And this is what it says in Luke 19, 11. Jesus, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Notice this part. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. This is where the people's heads are at. They believe that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that they've been waiting for forever, is going to come right now. And that is where um, their heads are at. And then Jesus on the way to Jerusalem after that. So he tells this parable, and he's coming through. And then he comes through where again? You can see the arrow. He comes through Bethany. 
And so this crowd that's with him just keeps growing and growing and growing. And it says, when Jesus comes to Bethany where he healed Lazarus, the Bible says a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there and came not only to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. And so this crowd that's with Jesus just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so now I want you to imagine the scene. And I want you to appreciate the audacity of what is happening in this scene. Because just before this, in John eleven fifty seven, the religious leaders told the people that anybody that knew Jesus' whereabouts should tell them so that he could be arrested. And yet here is Jesus, right? He's not hiding at all. He's coming into Jerusalem with this huge crowd like he's a king, right? You, there's people everywhere right this it's not like this is not that little picture in sunday school you know where you like color the like three people waving palm branches right and they like the palm branches move a little bit when you put that little pin in this is not like that this is a great crowd that's how the bible describes it it's a great crowd and people are everywhere and they're shouting hosanna they are thinking this is it everything that we have read about everything that we've waited for in our scriptures is going to come true this is the promised king how could it not be this god we just watched him heal a blind man. We just watched him raise a dude from the dead. We saw the guy who was raised from the dead. We are taking this place over. The Roman occupation is going to end. Israel will once again be free. This is our king. That's what they're thinking about right now. And I want you to feel that in your soul as we consider this, because sometimes I don't think we understand the magnitude of what was happening. The scene would have been insane. And so let's look at some background so that we fully understand what's happening here. So here's the background, because it's helpful. Um, in Zechariah 9.9, it says this, and a lot of your Bibles will have this cross-reference. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of the donkey. So that's the prophecy that would have been fulfilled. And this is what would have been on a lot of people's minds. This is what they're thinking about as they start to shout. Another thing that I want to show you here um, quickly is this little passage from 2 Kings um, 9.13. It says this, Each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Have you ever wondered why they put their clothes on the ground, right? When, when Jesus is coming in, like, we all get the palm branches thing, right? It's like, obviously, they ran out of foam fingers, and so people just started grabbing palm branches so that they could join in the fun, right? But why the clothes on the ground? This is why, right? Because this is what they did for a king. And so the people, when they're doing this, when they're laying their cloaks on the ground, they're saying, this is our king. And so let's look at a few observations from the text, because they're important too. Um, let's look at this. The first one is this Hosanna, right? Both Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord comes from Psalm 118. That's where these things are found in Psalm 118. And Hosanna um, means save us, or sometimes it can mean save now. And so W.S. Plumer tells us that the word rendered save now is Hosanna, which seems equivalent to our modern congratulatory prayer on the ascension of a monarch to the throne. Essentially, God save the king. 
And so Plumer wrote this in 1867, so that statement would have held a little bit more weight. Um, but we can appreciate what they're saying here. They're saying, essentially, God, like, save us. God save the king. They're calling him the king. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, also comes from Psalm 118. And that's sort of a, a religious expression, expressing enthusiasm. Um, R.T. France says this. He says, um, Hosanna was a phrase which had already come to be used more of a more as an exclamation of praise than a prayer in Jewish worship. From the next verse of Psalm 118 come also the next words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the last of the Halal Psalms, which were chanted antiphonally, so that means sung or chanted um, in alternating fashion at the great festivals of Israel. And these two verses were the climax of the performance, and they're like, man, we've sung these things before, but not like this, right? So that's why they're shouting. That's why the Bible says they're shouting this, because they believe it's coming true. They are believing that this is it. They're saying, all hail King Jesus. And one more thing I just want to show you is that we don't just see King Jesus um, in the New Testament. Um, Wayne Grudem says this in his systematic theology. He's talking about the, the term, thus says the Lord. And he says, in the world of the Old Testament, this phrase, thus says the Lord, which appears hundreds of times in Scripture, would have been recognized as identical in form to the phrase, thus says the king, which was used as a preface to, a, to an edict of a king to his subjects, an edict that cannot be challenged or questioned, but simply had to be obeyed. Right, and so this, you, you remember this, especially from the Old Testament, right? But hundreds and hundreds of times, it's right. It's thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, which you can hear. Thus says the King, thus says King Jesus. He's saying, I'm King. I'm King. Is this a, how you approach the Word of God? Do you take this level of seriousness with the Word of God as you would have as receiving an edict from the King? How many times do you know that kings gave suggestions? That doesn't make for a very good king, does it? Right? Kings don't, didn't normally give suggestions. Right? They gave edicts. They said, this is what you are to do, and we serve the great king. And so how do you know Jesus is your king? I think there's a couple things you can look at. The first is this. You obey your king. Right? You have reverence for your king, and you fight for your king. If someone is your king, that's essentially what you did. Right? You obeyed your king, you had reverence for your king, and you fought for your king. Are you ready to do those? Are you ready to obey your king? Do you have reverence for your king? Are you willing to fight for your king? And these things can get lost on us, right? But all throughout history, the majority of Christendom, these things would not have been lost. Right? This sort of um, imagery wouldn't have been lost. And one of the things, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, uh, one of the things that I love about Lord of the Rings is it conveys a lot of this, right? It conveys a love and a reverence and an obedience and act of service for their king. It's just assumed, right? Throughout all the movies, it's just, assume, it's just assumed that you will obey your king, that you'll have reverence for your king, and that you'll fight for your king. It's all just assumed. It's woven in to the way that they do life. Christians, is this woven into the way that you do life. Let's look at Jesus coming as a king. And he came as a specific kind of king, didn't he? He came as a humble king. 
right? Because the king got it, the, the crowd got it right, did they not? The crowd knew that he was a king, but they missed something, didn't they? If you notice in Zechariah 9.9, 9, uh, if you remember it from back there, they got caught up on the word victorious, right? And then they let their mind wander to what that would be, what they wanted, and they missed the word humble. That's what messed them up, right? They pictured Jesus as a warrior king because they wanted victory, but the kind of victory that they were looking for was physical, when in fact Jesus was coming as a humble king, right, to relieve them spiritually. And so I want to share a few just cool facts with you, um, just showing that Jesus was presenting himself both as the king, but specifically as a humble king. Right? So the first one's fairly obvious, because we just looked at it. Jesus is deliberately invoking Zechariah 9.9. He's saying, hey, look, this is me. Right? This is me, Zechariah 9.9. Number two, humble king. Uh, the same word humble is translated as gentle in Matthew 11.29 and meek in Matthew 5.5. 5. So hopefully that gives you a little bit more of a picture of what we're talking about here. When Jesus comes, he's coming as the humble king. He's coming as the gentle king. He's coming as a meek king. Number three, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't um, check the crowd's messianic connotations. Right? Just like if you looked at the story of Bartimaeus, if you remember him, what does Bartimaeus say? He, he calls him the son of David, right, in Mark 10, 47 and 48. He's not denying he's the king. He's not denying he's the king. When they call him the king, he, says, he doesn't deny. He says, you're right. Um, number four, um, the instructions for the transportation, right, for the donkey, that's always an interesting one. And so these instructions that were um, given to disciples, we always just think of that as like kind of a crazy thing that happened. Um, but this was actually quite a common way um, for really important people, government officials, kings, to secure transportation. They would walk into the streets and they would have, they would see some an animal tied up and they would tell the owner, hey, we're in need of this for a little bit and we're going to bring it back. Right, and that's a lot different than um, those action movies, right? Where someone um, they commandeer somebody's vehicle and they go on like this half-hour crazy car chase, and they just totally destroy that person's car, and then it never gets returned. I always feel bad for those people, don't you? When <laughs> in those movies where they their car just gets taken and just destroyed. Um, but in this case, Jesus did not um, take the donkey on a crazy car chase. Um, so this was a common thing that he was doing. It is it's. It's sort of another example of him saying, hey, look, I'm really important, right? This is me. Number five, um, riding on a donkey um, signified a priest, most of the time, sometimes a merchant. Um, it, it signified a man of peace, right? It's feeding into that idea of humility. And I didn't have time to explore it, but I think it's a cool thing to think about. When I saw that, it made me immediately think of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And just how he's sort of demonstrating that. So that would be something just to be interesting to look into more. Um, and the last one is this. Um, you notice that the priests want Jesus to calm the crowd down. right? Does Jesus calm the crowd down? No. right? He affirms them. Why? Because once again, he's saying, I am the king. right? If I don't do it, the rocks are going to cry out. Because I'm the king of the universe. right? So what's all this pointing to? It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the humble king. Now let's take a look at Jesus as the greatest king. Um, because later in scripture, we find Jesus riding on another animal, do we not? But this one projects a very different 
meaning. If you look in Revelation 9, 11 through 16, we see this. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written, so that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the greatest. He is the top. There's nothing greater. There's no chance for improvement. Jesus is everything. In Zechariah, we're told he was victorious through humility. Right? And is this not what we celebrate at Easter? Right? Do you know another king that would be willing to be killed as a criminal to save his people? Ordinary people like me? That's the beauty of the humility of the God. is, is the fact that he is the greatest king, and yet the humility that he demonstrates in dying for me. Right? That's only half the story, is it not? Right? It's only half the story. Because this is the other half. We don't just serve some mansy-pansy king. We don't serve a king who's weak. Right? We serve a king who killed death itself and will come back in power and might and rule also as a warrior king. He is victorious. Right? And he was victorious on the cross and he will be victorious when he comes again. I told you we'd do some application. This is how we're going to do it. I wanted us to look at this thought of Jesus, King Jesus, as king of my heart. I don't know about all you guys, um, but I've always been really annoyed with the crowd in the Easter story. Haven't you? The crowd is so annoying, right? From how they go to just praising Jesus and they just flip on him. Right? It drives me nuts. And yet I realize so many times that it can be me. Right? The crowd yelled, Hosanna. Save us. But what they want saving from? They wanted saving from their physical situation. Right? Not their spiritual situation. What they really needed was the salvation of their souls. They welcomed him as a king. Right? But when he wasn't who they wanted him to be, they turned on him. And I think we can sometimes do that. Right? And now that doesn't sound very great. Right? I wouldn't want to say, oh yeah, I turn on Jesus. But there's times where he asks me to do something as my king. If I don't like it, maybe I ignore him or I'm slow to act or slow to move, kind of drag my feet. Right? And I can certainly identify with times of being more concerned about my physical surroundings than my spiritual health. Maybe you can say the same. So I think it's good to be honest. I think it's good to be honest about this, that I desperately want Jesus to be king of my heart and of my life. But I I don't always treat him that way. And I think the goal of saying this is not so that we can wallow in our self-pity and failure and say, hey, look, do you all identify with me? But it's saying, will you join me in striving to allow Jesus to be king over everything in our lives? So like always, I'm going to ask you, to put on your thinking hat if you haven't already, 
And I want the Holy Spirit to really be working on you, right? I wanted to ask you this question. Where is Christ not king in your life? Where is Christ not king in your life? I'm going to give you examples. I'm sort of like I prayed at the start. This sermon's useless if you just hear my words. If the Holy Spirit doesn't convict you of something, it's not going to last. So I beg you to listen to the Holy Spirit, put some brain energy into it, and search your own heart and figure out where Jesus isn't king of your life because he deserves to be. He gave everything. So let's look at a few. First one's this. King Jesus, king of my schedule. Your schedule tells us where your priorities are because it's how you live your life. Are the things of God an inconvenience in your schedule or is your schedule constructed to show that Jesus is king? That's the first question. How about this one? We just finished this big series on finances, so I don't really need to talk a lot about it. Um, Here's my one question to you. Um, Do you actually plan on listening to the Lord? Or does Ben all just do that for fun? Right? Because I think that we've all been convicted of something. You don't sit under the teaching of God's word for five weeks and not get convicted of anything. No one's perfect. So the question is, do you actually plan on listening to your king? That's the question. Third one's this. Is he, we know he is king of the church, but is he king of the church in your head? Because here's the reality, right? The king loves his church. It's his plan A. In fact, it's the only plan, right? Therefore, this is interesting, your thoughts around church will show if Jesus is the king of your heart regarding church. Do you love what the king loves? Do you love the church? Because the king loves the church. He called us to love the church. Do you love the church? How do you speak about the king's church? Remember, the church is the people, right? The people. So that what we're talking about here is the people. How do you speak about the people, God's people, the church? Right? So this includes Christians that you agree with and Christians that you don't agree with. People who you connect with and people who you struggle to connect with. People who drive you crazy and people who you get along great with. They're all God's church. How do you speak about them? How do you treat them? And here's the second part to this. I think your actions also show if Jesus is king of your heart in this area. So let me ask you this question. If we had nothing here at church, would you still come? Right? If we, all we had is just some people and a Bible, would you still come? Or let me put it to you this way. Maybe this is the best way to put it. Where is God on the list of reasons you love church? Where is God on the list of list of reasons. So this is assuming you love church. And if you do love church, where's God on the list of why? Is he first? Is he first? Is it more than anything else? Is it him? King of my strengths, our small group just finished the book of Judges. 
And one of my biggest um, takeaways was the idea that we need to beware, not be aware, but beware of our strengths. Because those are the areas in our life where we're going to be most tempted to do things on our own. And this would fall right into the plan of the enemy to have you think that you are enough instead of that Christ is enough. So I ask you this question, is Jesus king over your strengths? This is something God's been convicting me of. Do you rely on him in the things that you are good at? Or do you only rely on him in the things that you aren't good at? That you feel like you need improvement in. You're like, oh, now I need God for this, to clean up this area of my life. Or is he king over your strengths? We can look at the flip side of this too, with weaknesses. One of the things that also stuck out to me as we were doing this series in Judges is that God is more concerned with your availability than your ability. God is more concerned with your availability than your ability. He asks you to be available. That's your job in the kingdom. That's what your king is asking you to do. He's asking you to be available to do what he's asked you to do. He will use your weakness for his glory. Listen to me very closely, because I care about you. God doesn't just call you to do things you're good at. God does not just call you to do things you're good at. Sometimes God purposely calls you to things that are outside your comfort zone, to things that you are not good at, so that you will rely on him. So what spiritually is outside of your comfort zone? Is it praying out loud? Is it teaching others God's word? Is it talking to new people? Is it initiating conversations of forgiveness? Is it not holding record of wrongs? Is it following God when you don't understand what he's talking about or why he would ask you to do it? God has called us to all these things and so many more. And some of them are going to come easy and some of them are going to be hard. But is he king of your weaknesses? That's the question. Here's the last one. Is he king of your heart? Jesus ends this passage weeping. You notice that? See the end of the text? Jesus ends this passage weeping. You know why? Because he knew that he was not really the king of the hearts of the people that were praising him. Right? They put on a great show, did they not? Cool atmosphere. 10 out of 10. But they actually didn't love God. And he knew it. And that's why they were going to be destroyed. Is your love for God a show? Or is it real? Do you really feel it in the depths of your soul? Do you obey and love your king when no one's watching? When it won't do you any good for anyone else? Will build you any social capital? No one will think better of you. It's just you and God. Would you love and obey your king if nobody else here would? If everybody in this room walked away except for you, would you still follow him? Or are you like, man, I'm giving up too? Will you purpose in your heart to follow the king no matter the cost? Do you love him more than anything? As your king, he died for you. I'm excited to celebrate that with you at Easter. As your king, he came back to life for you. 
as your king. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants everything. Will you give it to him? Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to do communion together. God, I pray that you would help me in this. God, I can be very honest that there are so many times where you are not king of my heart. I follow my heart's desires. God, I do what I want to do. I don't do what my king knows is best for me. God, I'm so sorry. Lord, I pray that you would help me in this. Lord, that I would make you king of my heart in everything. Lord, I thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your mercy, Lord, and your grace. Lord, I thank you that you came in humility, riding on a donkey. In humility, you allowed measly humans who you created, Lord, to kill you. But I also thank you that you are the victorious one, that you rose in power. Lord, that you're coming back in power. Lord, we thank you that all these truths can exist together. Lord, thank you for that. I pray that you would help each one of us today. God, I pray that we would have a greater appreciation, first and foremost, of you. God, that we would consider you, Lord, as both the humble king, but then one day also as the victorious king. You were victorious in your humility. We don't always view life that way. But I thank you for that, and I pray that we would consider what your humility means is that it um, attaches to all your other attributes, because I just think it makes me love you that much more. So thank you for that. And I pray that you would help us, God, to actually change, that we would just pick even one thing that you've been pressing on our heart. We would allow you to change us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.